Thanks, Zach. Let me invite you all to open up to Exodus chapter 32 this morning. Exodus chapter 32. I'm so excited that we have these pew Bibles now that so we can all really look at God's word together and track through what we're seeing in it. It's John and I's heart that uh, whatever is coming out of our mouths here from the front is reflecting accurately what we are seeing in the scriptures. So go ahead and open that up in one of the pew Bibles or maybe you use a, a, a digital device. So pull that up on your, your tablet or your phone or whatever that is. So Exodus chapter 32, I'm actually going to read that for us and then we will dig right into the text. So Exodus 32 says this, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took, he took what they had handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fash, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars, and I will give your descendants all this land that I promised them, and, I will, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are a God who desires to be in relationship with your people. Thank you that in Christ you have made a way for us to come near to your throne. As we come boldly before your throne of grace this morning, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes to your word. I ask, Lord, that you would please give me words to say, that, that we would understand your word more clearly, and that we would be drawn to worshiping you, the right response to what you have done for us in your son. It's in his name that we pray this morning, and all God's people said, Amen. Uh, well, today we're picking up in the text in chapter 32, but in the whole story of the book of Exodus, we're actually picking up, as weird as it sounds, just right after chapter 24. 
If you remember last time I was up here preaching, we we looked at chapter 24 where Israel went through what we called a covenant ceremony with Yahweh. They set up the altars and and the pillars and they sacrificed bulls and there was some blood sprinkling. There was some stuff that was quite culturally foreign to us and we kind of unpacked some of that. And what we came to as a conclusion was that the whole covenant ceremony was meant to recall for Israel that God wanted to be in a unique intimate relationship with his people. And as a response to this covenant, we saw that there was a relationship that was established between God and Israel, where some elders, a group of 74 Israelites, were called up onto Mount Sinai, and they shared a meal in God's presence. And the part of the text that we didn't cover in too much detail, the the end of that section, is where Moses then, after that meal, gets called up onto Mount Sinai again. And as he goes up onto Sinai, the Lord gives him instructions for building the tabernacle. For building the tabernacle. Here's a uh, kind of a a pseudo picture here, an an artist's rendition of what the tabernacle would have looked like. The tabernacle being this, this tent in the wilderness, as some people in my small group put it this week, where God came to dwell with his people as a result of this covenant. And what Pastor John had covered last week was how this tabernacle in the wilderness actually pointed for the people of Israel that they were symbolically going back to Eden. If you remember in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when Adam and Eve get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they are sent in which direction? East. Was that Caleb? Good for you, dude. So they're sent east, right? And as they're going back into the tabernacle, they're coming from east back to west to go into God's presence, right? And so as they're going into this tabernacle, they're saying, hey, we are entering into the gates of Eden once again. As you think about the tabernacle tent itself, it had a partition in it. And on that partition were pictures of cherubim, or you might think of them as kind of guardian angels guarding the presence of God, just like there were cherubim put at the gates to Eden. You even think about the decor that was in the tabernacle reflected the beauty of this garden. As you think about the priests that served in this tabernacle, it says that they are there to work in the tabernacle and keep it. The same language that's used for Adam and Eve where they're meant to work and keep the garden that God had placed them in. So what God is doing with this tabernacle here is he is giving these Israelites in his grace some semblance of the goodness of what it was like for Adam and Eve to experience perfect, beautiful relationship with him. But just as many of us know that Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and to disobey and to sin against him, and as a result, they were kicked out of the garden. They ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So too, in the story of Israel, we find a similar situation today. They decide, like Adam and Eve did, to do things their own way instead of trusting in God's provision. In other words, if the tabernacle situation is God kind of recreating the relationship of Eden, what we find in today's text is just like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, we see Israel has a fall of their own as they decide to sin against God and sever their covenant relationship with him. We see that after everything that God has already done for them, he's taken them out of Egypt, he's he's parted the Sea of Reeds, he's ushered them towards the promised land, they can barely make it through a month 
of being in this covenant before they decide to go astray. And yet, what I'm going to encourage us to see in the text this morning is that despite all of their foolishness, all of their rebellion, everything that's going on, God is so incredibly full of mercy for this people. Despite all of their attempts to thwart God's plans to actually get them to that promised land, God is enormously persistent, and we see that he is mighty to save. So, like I said, we're picking up at the end of chapter 24, so we're going to break this text up into some parts, and you don't have to turn there, but I'm actually going to read the end of 24 for us, and then read that first verse of chapter 32. Just listen and kind of try and track with the story. You can turn there if you want, but I'll read it for us. So chapter 24, at the end, it says, When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on the mountain. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. On the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked uh, looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up on the mountain. He stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And then chapter 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So the first thing that we see happens in our text today is that there is an apparently missing leader. Right, Moses is not there. And this is significant because up until this point in the Exodus story, Moses had not left Israel's side. He was always with them. He was their constant visible reminder of what God was doing among them. He was a tangible person. He was someone that they could touch, that they could talk to. He was someone safe that they could go to as they navigated the complexity of what it meant to be in relationship with a God that they quite frankly did not completely understand. So if they were afraid of God, they certainly were not afraid of Moses, but now Moses is gone. He's on top of the mountain. The cloud has come down on the mountain. They don't see him. They don't hear him. They don't have any sign of when he is going to come back, and he has now been gone for about 40 days, and the result of this is that these people start to get a little anxious. They have something stirring inside them of, Oh man, he's gone. What, what if he's abandoned us? What if God has abandoned us? What, what are we going to do? And instead of holding to what they know to be true of God, they decide that they're going to revert to old sinful habits that bring them comfort. So one of the, uh, you can all say, aw, I know he's cute. So, so one of, the, uh, one of the, the joys that Holly and I have been able to kind of experience with Danny recently is he started like grabbing onto things. He's, he, he, he puts everything in his mouth, you know, so we got to be careful of what happens. But he, he's tangibly able to look at things and say, hey, I want to get that and grab that. And as he does that, he has certain things that soothe him or, or bring him comfort and, and make him feel better about the world around him as he tries to figure out what is going on and his brain is always changing and he's always learning. So this is, uh, we call it Mr. Elephant. It's his favorite little thing that he holds on to these days. And he takes it, he puts it in his mouth and he talks to it, but it soothes him. It is his, it's his safety blanket. It, it's something that helps him feel like everything is going to be okay. And, and when we look at this, that, you know, the baby holding the safety blanket and, and he's happy and everything's going to be okay, we look at this and we think that it is something that's quite cute. 
But the reality is, is if this was a picture of an adult who is acting like a little baby and grasping for their safety blanket, we wouldn't think that is cute, would we? We'd view that to be immature. We'd view that to be inappropriate. And as we think about Israel today, although many of this group of Israelites is indeed adults and God is calling them into a mature covenant relationship with himself, what we see is happening with Israel is they're effectively acting like big babies. And when God allows them just for 40 days, so get this, it's just a month, to be just pushed out of their comfort zone a little bit, they can still see the presence of God descended on the mountain. The only thing that's different is Moses is gone. What they start doing is they start grasping at things that not only are unhelpful for them, but they end up dishonoring God. That's verses two and six. Look there with me. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings, that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So the Israelites, they don't have Moses to hold on to. He's no longer there as their visible reminder of what God is doing. So what do they do? They pressure Aaron, who should know better, by the way, by this point, into making them a golden calf. The text connotates, when you're looking at the Hebrew, when it says they gathered around Aaron, there's kind of this inference there that they kind of peer pressured him. He, he kind of felt stressed out by the situation. They said, hey, your brother's gone. Like, what are we gonna do? You need to make this for us. And he gives into this peer pressure and he makes this. So we go from a missing leader to what I call a reckless reaction on the part of Israel. Now, I want to take a moment just to kind of clarify what exactly is going on here with the golden calf. Because many of us, as we read this kind of on, on first look or on a, a surface reading, it can be a little bit confusing by the way that the, the, the language is put. And sometimes when we just read it as a surface reading, we actually end up kind of misinterpreting what is going on here. And there's actually some debate within the world of scholarship. So on the surface... Some of us might see this and say, okay, Aaron's making them a golden calf. And so they're making this calf and they're worshiping it as another God apart from Yahweh. But when we look deeply into what's going on, that doesn't seem to be what exactly is happening. Specifically looking at verses four and five. If you have the Bible in front of you, go ahead and look at that. After they make the calf, it says, then they said, they being the Israelite elders, said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So whatever is going on, they're seeming to associate this calf with the God who had just brought them out of Egypt, who had just taken them through the Sea of Reeds. And then as you look at verse five, you see that Aaron says, tomorrow there's going to be a festival to the Lord. If you see that word Lord in all capital letters, that, that is a, a, a stand-in for the word Yahweh, for the, the divine name. So between all of this, they're still holding a, a festival to the same God. So they do not seem to believe that this calf is different than the God that they have been worshiping all along. So that should lead us to say, okay, what is going on? And this is where it gets a little bit in the weeds, so, so bear with me. 
And what scholars would, would suggest is happening is one of two things. One of them is that Yahweh is actually standing on top of this calf as a pedestal, kind of like he would do to the altar. Now that sounds kind of weird to us, but in their iconography and artwork, you actually see that other nations thought of their gods as doing the same thing. An alternative would be that they view this calf to be a visual representation of Yahweh. And so as they're worshiping this calf, they're justifying to themselves that they're still worshiping Yahweh. And this would actually make quite a bit of sense when you consider their neighbors, the Canaanites. The Canaanites, when they worshiped their patron god Baal, they symbolized him by a bull. And so you have all of these Israelites who are freaking out because Moses is gone, and they're like, we need some way to connect with our God. What are we gonna do? Well, what are our neighbors doing? Our neighbors made a bull to represent Baal, so why don't we just make a golden calf? So either way, the, the point is, with Moses gone, as this visible, visible reminder of Yahweh leading them, they create their own image of Yahweh that makes them feel safe and makes them feel well-led. And this is a direct violation of the second commandment that they had just received. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Another way that you might think of this is that God wants his people to follow him by faith, meaning that they have assurance and they have hope in what he is going to do. They are convinced that what he says is true, but they don't always see the fruition of that. And in this moment of stressfulness, in this moment of anxiety, we see that Israel is trying to follow God by sight instead of following him by faith. They make something that they can see. So Moses is gone as their spiritual safety blanket, so they make this calf so that they don't feel too vulnerable in the wilderness. Now, I don't think a lot of us you know, resonate with the idea of making an idol or making a golden calf uh, when we want to be reminded of God's presence. I think that would be kind of weird. I, I might think you're a little odd or strange if you decided to do that. But, but this should still cause us, what's going on here with Israel, to have a, a bit of a heart check this should cause us to pause and consider our own situations, and here's why. Because when we look at Israel, when we look at what they're doing, what they're participating in, they are convinced that what they are doing is authentic to them. They're, they're in their minds justifying this to themselves as being okay for some reason. They're saying our neighbors are doing this. This seems to be an appropriate worship style. So I am going to participate in what's going on around me. And yet in the next part of the text that we're gonna look up here, God is enormously upset to the point that he threatens to wipe them out. For them, their sin here is not some far-fetched thing that they would look at and say, oh, I would never do that. that. That's just so extreme and heinous and awful. For them, it is only a slight distortion of the good gift of worship that we saw in chapter 24, and yet they are just as guilty before God. Just consider how, how this reflects chapter 24. Remember, we talked about the bulls and the altars and the pillars. Consider what Aaron does immediately after they make the calf. He makes an altar and says, we're gonna have a festival. Consider in chapter 24, the sacrifices and the offerings that they did to Yahweh that were acceptable to him. And now, now that they've made this calf, they do the exact same offerings. This is a perversion or a, a parody of what we had seen happen before when God initially invited them into 
the covenant. This is not something crazy out of this world. This is just a slight distortion. And this should be scary for us because it should remind us, frankly, that sin and idolatry is amazingly deceptive. When we think about our our sin and our brokenness, when we think about our idolatry, it does not always look ugly. It does not always look uh, especially broken. In many ways, it's, it's culturally acceptable. In many ways, it's culturally celebrated. And even to our eyes, we do a really good job at, at justifying to ourselves, hey, this seems like a good idea. This, this, this pleases me or this person seems to be happy with me as a result of me doing this. Therefore, I'm going to participate in this. But instead, what we see happening and what we need to be reminded of is that our sin is almost always the result of taking something that God declared good and that he gave us as a good gift and we either change it or we manipulate it to fit our preferences or comfort levels or we elevate it to the point that it was never meant to be in to the point where we value that thing or that person more than God himself. And what's sobering is that even with all of Israel's zeal and their authenticity, right? They're celebrating what's going on. They don't seem to have it in their minds, any sense of guilt, like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. For them, this seems to be something that they've normalized, and yet they're still inviting God's judgment in the next part of the text. Verse seven says, then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you, being Moses, into a great nation." So as Israel super quickly violates these covenant stipulations, they're inviting the penalty on themselves that we saw happened during the covenant ceremony. If you remember that, they killed the bulls as a symbol of, okay, if I break my side of the covenant, may this be done to me. And now they are inviting that exact same punishment on themselves as we see God's just response to Israel's sin. And God, in his justice and in his faithfulness, consider this, he's not just faithful to his mercy and his grace and his love, he's also faithful to his justice, which is a very good thing. He, in his faithfulness to his justice, intends to be true to the agreement he has made with Israel. He says, if any of us break this, May, as those bulls were killed, may that be done to us. Now Israel has invited this upon themselves. And yet what's amazing and beautiful in this text, and you gotta you got kind of read under the radar to kind of see what exactly is going on. Before he destroys the Israelites, God, as, as one scholar would put it, invites Moses into his anger. He invites Moses into his anger. And you might say, as, you, as I say that, okay, well, why would he do that? Right? What, what is the purpose of him doing this? Is there something we, we're missing? Is this something arbitrary? Because on, on surface level reading, it might seem like God is kind of acting like you know, a, a, a stubborn teenager right? who, who says, just leave me alone. Like, I don't want to talk to you. I'm angry. I'm going to go lock myself in my room, Moses, and then we're going to start over. But I don't think that is what is going on because God does not have to tell Moses what he's going to do. Consider that with me. God has every right to just destroy the Israelites, wipe them out, just done. Like we're gonna start over, new fresh covenant, they violated it, like we're moving on and we're going forward. And yet he chooses 
to invite Moses into this. And I would say that this would seem to imply that God is prompting some sort of response out of Moses. And that's the beauty of the situation. Because God is perfectly willing to destroy Israel, something that he has every right to do. But what he does is he prompts a sort of intercession out of Moses. What we're seeing is is he's acting Moses to be the one who intercedes on behalf of Israel. Are you tracking with that, what's, what's going on? So God's inviting Moses to mediate for Israel because although he has the right to destroy them, we know that God is fully loving. He is perfect love. And he doesn't want any of his people, especially these Israelites here, to perish. And so he will enact his justice, but he invites Moses by prompting him to do something profound. So this is even a moment, despite we see God's justice being played out, this is an enormous moment of God's grace because we see in Moses that God actually provides temporary, uh, temporary mercy for Israel. So God has offered to make Moses the new patriarch. He says, Moses, I'm gonna wipe them out and we're gonna start over with you. You're gonna be like the new Abraham and we're gonna make a new people and we're still gonna continue to go into the promised land. We're still gonna establish a new covenant kingdom and yet Moses picks up on God's under the radar invitation to intercede and he humbly declines and he begs God for mercy. This is the last part of our text this morning. It's starting verse 11. It says, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord. That word favor uh, is, is also the word in Hebrew, grace. So he sought the grace of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and, uh, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars, and I'll give your descendants all of this land I promised them, and it'll be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented, and he did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. So, so let's just take a minute to observe kind of that conversation, because that's it's kind of interesting. Like This is one of those moments in the Bible that kind of causes us to like pause and be like, like, what, what, is, what is happening? Like, how, how is this interacting with God's sovereignty? And how is this interacting with, with, with what's going on with his mercy and his justice? But, but this says a lot, not only about Israel's kind of dire situation, but it also says a lot about God's character here. So, so on the one hand, observe with me that as Moses talks to God, he does not make any attempts to justify Israel. Like, it's very clear here that Israel is in the wrong. So I just want to, like, caution us against seeing God as as some kind of bully here. That's not what's going on. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They have done something incredibly heinous in the sight of God. Like, as an example of this, imagine if you uh, got a letter in the mail that you were invited to come to the White House to visit the president. Now, I'm not really worried what everybody thinks of the president, but, but the point here is no matter what you think of him, the reality is to be invited to the White House to visit with any president is an enormous honor and it's an enormous privilege. But imagine you get over to the White House and you walk into uh, the Oval Office and you spit in Biden's face and you flip him the bird and you walk out of the room. Right? That would be in a kind of an extreme moment. Right? This would be a moment that's not only inappropriate and disrespectful, but th- I would imagine there would be some repercussions for doing that. And, and rightfully so, right? 
Now consider that Israel has just done essentially the same thing by breaking this covenant, and yet it's infinitely worse because they have not just effectively spit in the face of the president, they have effectively given God the finger and said, we're doing this our way. We want to do this the way that we want to do it. And they're spitting in the face of this holy, perfect, and just God who has just mercifully saved them from slavery. And so as we think about that, imagine, I I think this should give us a little bit more clarity as why Israel has no leg to stand on here. So Moses doesn't try and justify Israel at all. He gets it. He gets the depths of their brokenness and their depravity. And instead, in this conversation with God, he does something much different. And it's amazing. He appeals to God based on who God is and what he has already done and what he has already promised. He says, God, these are the people that you've just saved by your mighty hand, as the text says. You've called them into relationship with yourself. Are you you now going to destroy them after all that you've already done for them? He says, what would the other nations think? You know, part of God's mission is not just for Israel, but it's to bless all nations. But how would the nations view God after the Egyptians especially see him take them out by these miraculous plagues and then all of a sudden kill them out in the wilderness? Like this would give the nations an opportunity to say, we told you so. Like, you shouldn't have left slavery. You should, have, you, should, you should have stayed with us. And not only that, but he intercedes with God by saying, God, you made a promise to, to Abraham and, and your descendants that you were going to multiply them, that you were going to make them fruitful and multiply, make them into a nation and bring them into this land. And it would seem that to destroy all these people is actually the opposite of multiplying them, right? You see, you see Moses... He's interceding for Israel to God, and this is, this is where it's amazing, by asking God to keep being exactly who he is. That's, that's the beauty of the situation. He's not asking God to change. He's not saying, God, I wish you were different. You should change your intentions. You should have a different will. That's not what's going on in the text. He knows Israel is wrong. And later on, we'll see in the text John's going to cover next week that Israel actually does face some punishment. What happens here is they're simply not annihilated. But he appeals to God on the basis that he is not only perfectly just, but he is also perfectly faithful and full of abundant mercy. The tension that that exists kind of in that conversation there, but it's not just there, it's throughout the whole Bible storyline, is that God is indeed just. And that is a good thing. And that is a right thing. That means that every single wrong that has ever been done to us or every single injustice that we ever have, have witnessed or heard about or that has happened will be made right at the end of the day, either in this life or at the coming of God's kingdom. But what we see that despite the fact that God is just, he is also chosen in his goodness to enter into relationship with a people who really make a job of inviting his justice on themselves. And so the question then stands throughout the whole story of scripture is how can the all-powerful, holy, perfect, just God be in a relationship with these people who like to invite his justice on them. How can he come and be with them without destroying them, right? That's the the tension that exists with the tabernacle. He comes into covenant, right? And then the relationship follows. He comes down to dwell with them, but now they have sinned against him. And if God were to enact his justice, like we see going on here, he he would say, let's just wipe them all out. And yet he invites 
Moses' intercession. And as we go through the story of the Bible and reach the New Testament, we find that the question of how can a holy God dwell with a, single, uh, a sinful people, that comes to resolution in one person, the person of Jesus. You see, Israel is not the only people group who engages in idolatry, right? We see this in the nations all around them, but I would say that we also do the same thing, and as such, we invite God's wrath. The challenge that we all face is, as John Calvin put it, our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly trying to find other things than God to worship. We have this tendency to not just look at something or someone and appreciate it, We have this tendency that we become infatuated with things that we really like and we go and we take the next step and we oftentimes try and replace God with them. And sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. This happens over small periods of time to the point where we are, before we know it, consumed by an infatuation with that person or that thing instead of giving our allegiance to God himself. And like I mentioned, the scary part of all this is is that this replacement of God with something that is not God is often very subtle. It's often extremely subtle. And the result of this idolatry is terrible because what happens is we're image bearers of God. And yet when image bearers of God start to worship things other than God, we start to look like that thing instead of the God who created us. We see this happen in the text, that we begin to look like the thing that we worship. When God says in verse 9, I've seen these people, the Lord said, and they are a stiff-necked people, that language of stiff-necked would apply to uh, a calf or oxen that is yet to be broken in, that doesn't want to follow its master. And what did Israel just create? A calf. Right? So what you're seeing going on in the text is they're starting to look like that calf that they had just made. And so what happens, instead of loving our neighbors, instead of serving one another like God has called us to do, we end up looking like these flawed things and it results in damage and in brokenness. And just like Israel here severed their relationship with God through this covenant, so too have we done that and rightfully invited God's condemnation upon ourselves. And yet, when we look to Jesus, we see that God in his goodness, in his mercy, in wanting a relationship with us, despite us being as flawed as we are, despite the fact that so often we love to do things the way that we want to do it. So often we look at other things and say, that looks more interesting than God. I'm going to go and follow that. Despite the fact that we continue to do these things in our hearts, God cares so deeply for us. He loves us perfectly to the point where he's willing to send his son to take on flesh, to live the life of perfect faithfulness that we cannot, to give his life for our sake, and to take upon himself that perfect justice, the wrath of God that he not only was gonna pour out on these Israelites, but that he will pour out on us apart from Christ on the cross. And as we see this happen, as we see Jesus rise from the dead, we see that, there, that God relents from the wrath that he's gonna pour out on us. And we have, we have found a way to come back to God because of Jesus. In today's text, we see that Moses is a, a flawed, but he's a shadow of this mediator who intercedes on behalf of Israel. But in Jesus, we see that God has taken on flesh to be the perfect mediator who has risen from the dead and can always intercede for his people. 
This means that every one of us who place our faith in Christ, we can know and have assurance that God's wrath no longer abides on us. In fact, it's the opposite. We have God's approval. We have God's acceptance. It's not something that we've earned. It's not something we deserve. And yet Christ has purchased it for us. Have you considered the implications of the resurrection? Yes, the resurrection is profound because as Christ was raised, we believe that as we place our faith in him, one day we too will be raised. But as the book of Hebrews puts it, that has severe implications for us right now because although we turn our hearts to Christ, we are still imperfect people as God's spirit works in us and we constantly stumble and we constantly fall and we constantly choose to do things our own way instead of doing them the way that God has called us to. And yet, because Christ is raised from the dead, the book of Hebrews says that he always lives to intercede for us. Friends, this is not a one-time thing. This is a constant lifestyle of repentance and turning to God, knowing that Christ is at his right hand, interceding as Moses was here, but only better, and we can receive forgiveness no matter what we've done. See, Moses is this temporary mercy for Israel, but Christ provides complete forgiveness, not just for Israel, but for all people. So how do we respond? How should we kind of wrestle through what we're seeing in the text and, and apply this to ourselves? I'm gonna give us three, t- three steps here, three steps. The first thing is this, consider your idols. So what or who are you worshiping other than God? As I said, this is subtle. It doesn't look like necessarily us creating an idol. I don't think that you're going to have a worship service on Sunday to whatever you're, you're infatuated with instead of coming to church. It's oftentimes much more subtle than that. It, it, we have to discern it by asking, what are we trying to please? Who are we trying to please the most? What are, what are, who are we looking to for comfort? What are we fixating on more than God? And as we answer those questions, we find answers to maybe that's something that's become an idol in my life that I need to do something about. The second response, once you've identified your idols, is what are you seeking from your idols? What are you looking to, what are you looking to them for? What do you believe that they can provide that God cannot? Because we're running to them for a reason, right? We wouldn't run to these things if they didn't provide us with something that we wanted or felt like we needed. So why are you running to them? And, and ask yourself, are they really meeting that deep need that I have? Because if I was constantly running to them time and time again, it would seem that what they're providing me is not sufficient. So discern what your idols are, ask what you're seeking from them, and then finally, turn to God as the only one who can truly satisfy. Holly and I's small group talked about this uh, idea last week, uh, this past week of why should I turn to God, right? Have we ever thought about that question? Like, have you ever had someone just ask, like, why God? Like, why would I worship this God? Like, what can he offer me? And the answer is this, and I think it's quite relevant to what we're seeing in the text, is that the deepest needs and the deepest wants that you could ever have, they find their fullest satisfaction in a restored relationship with God. So it's not what can God offer me or why would I follow him? It's there is nothing that I yearn for that is not satisfied in him. Friends, when, we, when our hearts get this, when we internalize this, when we remember this time and time again, that whatever we're looking for is found in its fullness in Christ, 
And as we cling to him over and over again, although we might struggle, although times we might fail, as we turn back to him and trust in his forgiveness, his perfect intercessory work with the Holy Father, we find that every idol, every sin, every broken expression of worship, every foolish thing is exposed for what it is. It's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit of what God desires to give us. And it's a counterfeit of what God has gone to great lengths to give us through a restored relationship with him in Christ. As we come to the Lord's table today for communion, I just want to, I must remember that the body and the blood of Christ, Christ's own life, is what God went to great lengths to do in order to make sure that all of the deepest longings of your heart could be found in him. And we no longer have to go to these other things, these other people to meet these perceived needs that we have. Let's take a moment. I want to invite you just for a time of quiet reflection uh, before we move to a time of confession together. Merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we've done and the things that we've left undone. We confess that we've not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, it's so easy for us to see the creation that you have made and begin to, in our appreciation for it, begin to revere it and worship it as the creator. And yet, Lord, we're reminded by this text that as we do that, we don't end up serving and loving one another. We don't find the thing that we're truly looking for. In fact, it ends up quite the opposite, where we end up feeling broken and we end up feeling like we're lacking. Lord, we do not want to be a people who worship idols. We want to worship you and you alone as you have called us to do. So Lord, would you please direct our hearts to you? Would you forgive us for the ways that we have uh, implied our allegiance to other things instead of turning in our explicit allegiance to you? Would you change our hearts that we realize that everything that we need is bound up in your son? The apostle Paul says all the riches of glory and knowledge and wisdom are found in Jesus, our hope of glory. Lord, in your mercy, forgive us for what we've been. Would you help us to amend what we are and would you direct what we shall be, Lord? so that we might delight in your will and that we would walk in your ways all to the glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen.